you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. It's about just over two-thirds into the scriptures, and it's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, For those of you uh, who are newer to Central, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 all summer long. So if you have to look at the index to find where Matthew is, just you can turn to the exact same spot all summer long. You'll look like an old pro. So so that's the spot because we're going to dive into the Lord's Prayer this summer. Prayer is at at just sort of a base level speaking with God. If the Word of God is primarily God speaking to us, which it is, You want God to speak to you? Open the Bible. It's his very words to you. Prayer is primarily our speaking, communicating with God. Like, that's amazing. Is it not incredible to you that the God of the universe, the God of the heavens, the God who has made all things, invites us into something called prayer where we get to talk with him? That's incredible, so incredible, it's almost unfathomable. That is an opportunity afforded to us, and yet many of us don't really pray very much. Why is that? I would wager a guess that I think think one of the reasons a lot of us don't really pray very much is that we don't really know how to pray. Or at least here, at least our experience with it has been so lifeless, we figure we're not doing it right. And so if we've been in church for any amount of time, if we're talking like years, we feel like a question we can't ask because we should know the answer by now is, like, how do we pray? And so for many, there's a, a lifeless or non-existent prayer life, and, and, and this self-conscious sense of, well, I can't ask anybody how to pray. I should know by now. And so what's typically happened for a lot of us is we just keep infrequently praying the same old things the same old way. And we find it, frankly, pretty boring. Meanwhile, the world, everybody on the planet really, is starving for spiritual experience. So where we've been told, especially in the last century, that religion is dead or religion is on the verge of dying, of faith and spirituality and things of God, that's on the way out the door because reason and science, what can be right, seen, tasted, touched, smelled, these things, this data that we can observe is all that there really is. So that's been the projection for years, and yet the craving and the stirring and the starving for spiritual experience has never ceased. And the reason is because there is this wiring in us that longs to commune with the divine, this thing called prayer, this way to encounter the divine. And what we see in Matthew chapter 6 is Jesus giving us that kind of access a way to come face to face with the king of the universe with confidence that he's listening and that he loves us. That is what Jesus is offering in Matthew chapter six. So look, if you have a non-existent prayer life, 
or it just feels numb or lifeless, I just want to invite you in. That's okay. We're going to look all summer long at the Lord's Prayer, God's template, what Jesus offers to us who are confused, desperately want to connect with God, and yet find such lackluster life in prayer. Just inviting you in all summer long to learn and to learn and to learn to be amazed at what Jesus has offered us in the Lord's Prayer. And you're not alone. I want to grow in my knowledge of prayer and my life of prayer with God. I want that. And you're not alone because the disciples of Jesus wanted precisely the same thing. In the midst of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. In the Gospel of Luke, there's another telling where Jesus tells the Lord's Prayer in a slightly different way, an abbreviated way, and in a different context. So we recognize that Jesus taught this prayer model, template, multiple times. And on the occasion in Luke, his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And like I said, the disciples aren't asking during the Sermon on the Mount or after it, Lord, teach us to preach. It's not the question. The question that they pose to Jesus is, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, sure, pray like this. And he offers that to us, what's become known as the Lord's Prayer. Look, everything we need is contained in it, everything. And the prayer that opens a deep, satisfying, prayer-filled life is offered to us. And so that's where we're hanging our hats this summer. Phrase by phrase, line by line of the Lord's Prayer this morning All we are glancing in on on the Lord's Prayer is our Father in heaven. And I just want to tell you, I've left tons of notes on the cutting room floor. You'd think, right, our Father in heaven is just a few words, but there's so much. It's so rich. Next week, hallowed be your name. You're like, shouldn't we get through that pretty quick? Now, we'll take 40 minutes and we, we need days and days and days after that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Week after week, we're just going to hang our hats there on phrase after phrase. It's so rich. What Jesus has given us is incredible. It's not long, but it's amazing. In the original language, it's a mere 57 words. David McIntosh in the National Review wrote, the Lord's Prayer is 66 words by translation. The Lord's Prayer is 66 words. The Gettysburg Address is 286 words. There are 1,322 words in the Declaration of Independence, but the government regulations on the sale of cabbage total 26,911 words. So there's a fact for you. I don't know. The length and the amounts, the counts of the words is simply not the point. Daryl Johnson wrote a profoundly beautiful little book on the Lord's Prayer, and he called it 57 Words That Change the World. It's not a long prayer, but it has the power to change your life and change the world. The Lord's Prayer. It's worthy of our time, worthy of our study. Before we get there, I just want to read a little bit of the lead up to it. If you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 6, we'll show it on the screen as well. Starting in verse 5, Jesus begins to teach on prayer. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and on the stage with a microphone attached to their heads. That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. 
Like whatever amount of applause or awe or amazement that, that, that the, the person on the street corner praying is getting, that's all the reward they're getting, no more. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do or as pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So before we land on our father in heaven, I just want to quickly, from Jesus' words here, set the table a little bit on how not to pray and how to pray just from what Jesus has said here, how not to pray. Like Jesus leads with, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Like he's labeling a kind of prayer that happens, a particular kind of prayer life, a particular kind of prayer is hypocritical. So we'll call that religious prayer. It's as if, if I pray, then I'm good with God. It's, it's sort of that kind of approach as opposed to Christian or praying in Jesus' name that, that doesn't earn us a thing, but gives us communion with God. So let's talk about how not to pray. Religious prayer, as we can see from the text, is for an audience, not for God. It's to impress people, not to connect with God. So that's the first thing we can learn about how not to pray. Don't pray with people as your motivation. I'm going to pray this eloquent thing, and those people will think, wow, he really loves Jesus. It's not the point. That's, that's how not to pray. Religious prayer uses all kinds of religious words. So it seems very complicated and very hard. Religious prayer prays for, is prayer for a long time and it's repetitive. It's using the same words. The literal translation here is babble. Jesus is saying, don't be like those who babble on and on and on. The length doesn't earn you a thing. Not only the length, though, but, but the actual praying of, of, of nonsense and incantations is what, is what is being alluded to here. That if I use the right phrases in a repetitive way and repeat them enough, I can conjure some sort of force here, this incantation. That's religious prayer, and we're not to pray that way. Religious prayer is informing God of what is needed as if he's out of the loop. Jesus says he already knows. You don't need to inform God, just so you know, I did these good deeds and there's this thing going on. It's not necessary. He already knows. Ultimately, religious prayer is repugnant to God. So that's how not to pray. But what do we see from the text in terms of how to pray? First and foremost, here's the big piece about how to pray that I'd want to tell you. Pray from the heart. Pray from the heart. Our eloquence doesn't, isn't impressive before God. The use of religious jargon isn't particularly compelling to God. Your heart, its posture, how you approach God from your heart is what Jesus is after. Look, for us, it, it doesn't tick some sort of religious box. So like I came and I sang the songs. Or I sat down and I prayed to God and we can tick the box. Look, our mouthing the words or singing along to words of songs merits us nothing before God. Our praying particular prayers, reciting the Lord's prayer while our heart is disconnected from it, gains us nothing before God. There's no religious box that, that makes us righteous, that makes us good with God. It doesn't merit us a thing. 
but coming before God honestly in prayer to the one who knows what we need, but coming to him regardless, that posture of desiring to come before him is what is at the heart of prayer. Also, God is a father and accepts prayer of any length. That's who he is. God is a father. He accepts prayer at any length. It doesn't need to be long. There don't need to be certainly any incantations, but there doesn't need to be babble. I don't so much love that my boys come to me and when they come to me that they talk a long time. As a dad, I just love that my boys come to me. And in some instances, the shorter the better. Like, just get to the point. Off with you. Uh, like, it, so we don't need to trick ourselves into thinking, I'm coming before God. I will pray in a Victorian. It's, you know, it's like, this is not necessary. Hallowed be thy name. It's like, it doesn't gain us, doesn't merit us a thing. It doesn't need to be long-winded. It doesn't need to go on and on and tick all the boxes of adoration, confession, Think I can't do supplication yet. Like it, that, those forms are helps, but ultimately it's heart. Ultimately it's just, see what, 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 what frees us if we don't think we have to get through all the process of doing prayer just this way, that way, that way, is like you can just whisper a sentence to God throughout the day. We actually get to, to come, when we relieve ourselves of the burden of being so formal, we get all the more closer to praying without ceasing because as we're driving, we're, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I didn't lift that finger when I wanted to, when that person did that thing. Thank you, God. On we go. We didn't start with, hallowed be thy name. Like we, it, it didn't have to. It's just a whispered prayer. God, thank you for this grace of this thing. And just whispering a prayer without the formalities. He's a father who loves to hear from his kids. So, um, it's really freeing to realize, to recognize that God knows everything before we ask. He already knows. So when we come to prayer, we don't have to tell him something he doesn't know, but we can just dive right in and talk to him about it. When we come to pray, we're not making God do something he doesn't want to do. He won't be bent that way. So we just come to him and we talk with him. When we come to pray, we're not impressing God with our long prayers or our religious verbiage. See, really, Christian prayer is supposed to be humble, not boasting, right? That's what the guy on the street corner, right, loudly praying to be heard by others. That's not the posture of, of Christian prayer. It's, it's humble. It's, it's respectful. It's sincere, and it's personal. It's talking to our heavenly Father. Christian prayer recognizes both that God knows our needs and yet at the same time has chosen to grant some things only when his people pray. It's a really interesting thing. He already knows. So the logic for some of us is, well, what's the point of praying then? He already knows. And we just kind of go, God knows. Yeah, but we're called to pray and God has ordained it that he will not do some things without the coming of his people to him in prayer. Martin Luther simply wrote, a great summary of prayer when he said, what I consider to be prayer is that which proceeds from the heart rather than the mouth. It's that which proceeds from the heart towards God. It's prayer. In this context, if you have your Bible open, Matthew 6, the first 18 verses, there's kind of three different scenarios going on around money, prayer, and fasting. And to summarize what Jesus is saying here so we can see the context of the Lord's prayer here is first he's saying we shouldn't give to impress others. 
Again, it's not a motivation towards God. It's not a heart posture that says, Lord, I give this back to you for your grace to me, love for me. You're trying to impress with your giving. You want the $100 bills to be seen. You just wave them a little bit before you slip them in. It's like, that's not the point of giving. Secondly, we shouldn't pray in a way that highlights how spiritual we are to others. It's not the point. It's heart posture. And then thirdly, he says we shouldn't fast so that others think we're humble or pious, making a show of our spirituality, our piousness by making a show of humility. Ultimately, he summarizes the heart behind these things, what he's calling us to when he says in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of that. And so what he's calling for here is really what's come to be known as the prayer closet or in secret, just away from other people so your motivations aren't twisted, just slipping away by yourself time with God. It's easier to be honest when you're not thinking, oh, I wonder what that person's thinking as I do this or that. And so that's what Jesus advocates for here. Um, A.W. Tozer, great uh, 20th century pastor and writer, um, he, you know, back in the day, right, wear the full suit, not only on a Sunday morning, but wear the full suit to the office, the church office all week long. And that was his practice. And so when he would get to the church, um, he would go into his office and he, then once he was in, he would close the door and take off his suit jacket, hang it up. And then he would change his pants into what became known to some other people as Tozer's prayer pants. So because, you know, you have these nice suit pants, the slacks, right, and the trouser, if you will, and you don't want to mess up the hem when you get down on your knees or lay down to pray. So he got into comfortable prayer pants in his office and would just lay on the floor of his office and pray. It wasn't to be seen by others, but it was his practice. And so just so everybody is aware, the reason why I don't wear a suit and the pastors don't dress up here at Central is because we always want to be prayer ready, Okay. So as you see me dress like this and think, man, he could clean up a little bit. I wish he'd wear a tie. Prayer ready. It's a spiritual, this is a spiritual process for me. And so there's that. A friend of mine, uh, his, his mother's knees had calluses on them because her practice was to retreat to a particular part of the house where she could be alone and there was tile there. And her practice was just to kneel down and pray to God. That was her prayer closet. It was just tiled room in the house, calluses there. The only reason they knew she was so fervent in prayer wasn't because they saw her doing it, but because they're like, why are your knees so rough, mom? Like, it's like, well, I like to, you know, go pray over here, right? It's just like, it's not, it's just a posture of humility before God that says, get away and spend time with him. Oh, I love that heart. Now, Jesus says in verse nine, pray then like this. Jesus is saying a couple things with this little phrase. First, he's not saying, if you pray, pray this way. He's saying, pray like this. It's a given that the disciple of Jesus will be given to prayer. He doesn't say, if you, if prayer is something you like, or if you're one of those prayer warriors, or you're one of those people who's really good at praying, and you watch the, the what's that, the God room? No, what's that called? The war room? <laughs> and you think, ah, that's me. You know, like, no, every disciple Praise. Pray like this, Jesus says. So that's the first thing. It's not if you pray. A disciple of Jesus prays, and you may not be great at it. You may not pray very long, but you're given to prayer and growing in prayer. The second thing when he's saying pray like this is that Jesus isn't giving us a prayer to pray as a mantra. 
Like we've just seen that he's saying, don't do that. Don't just recite words where your heart's not connected to it as if it's going to gain you anything. It won't accomplish a thing. So it's not a mantra, it's a model. So you can do a few different things with this. We may choose to pray these exact words reflectively. Just, yeah, literally pray the Lord's Prayer. I mean, Jesus said, pray like this and offered us the model. Can't go wrong with that if you're willing to engage your heart in it. Or perhaps as another uh, practice, you might want to reflectively pray the Psalms. Right? The Psalms are often... Uh, have an arc that's similar to the Lord's prayer of adoration of God, praising him, marveling at his glory and his majesty, and then kind of working to a place of our need. And so the Psalms are also a, a great place where you can prayerfully just pray back Psalms. Or you can use this Lord's prayer as a model to direct your own words towards similar concerns. I make a practice of this nearly every morning of praying the Lord's Prayer and using it as a diving board to, to dive into the things that, that each phrase leads me to. So, for example, I'll pray in the morning, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just pray, God, I want to revere you today. Your name represents everything about you, all that you are, and you're absolutely amazing, stunning, incredible, glorious. Thank you for who you are. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And just just pause there in the particular day and what comes to mind regarding those things. Lord, your agenda in my life today, not my own, your kingdom built today, not mine. Your will done, not mine. Lord, help me to catch who you are, what you're doing, and live for that, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread, right? And then a phrase, and on and on, just allowing, it to, allowing ourselves to leap off the Lord's prayer is a very helpful way to recognize we're praying in a way that Jesus has offered to us. In this Lord's prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer, that is the Lord's prayer, has seven petitions in it. The first three are all about God. They're about God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's will. Then the next four are about the needs of ours. Daily bread, forgiveness, help in temptation and deliverance. This is the right perspective. Look, when we fix our eyes on God and see him rightly, everything's put into proper perspective. This is the practice of our lead team, of our elders, is that uh, when we meet together, it starts with 45 minutes on our knees in prayer. That's where we start. And then once we're done that, then we come around the table and the agenda begins. And the first item on the agenda is always a devotional where someone uh, from the team uh, shares from the word, and then there's more prayer. <laughs> and so we're at least an hour into our lead team meetings without ever having touched on an agenda item outside of the word and prayer. But that's never anything to remove from the way 
that we function as leaders in this place because the reason is, like the Lord's Prayer, when we view God rightly, when our posture is His glory, His fame, seeing Him clearly, everything else then files into its proper perspective. We're not leading with our need. We're leading with a God who can meet it if it's His will. And that's a very different thing. And so it actually begins by fixing our eyes like Jesus has shown us onto who God is and His agenda. It shapes um, the rest of our prayer life from there. At the same time, just to confuse you, that doesn't mean that as a rule, we need to always begin with God and how great he is and reflecting on that for five to 10 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever it is before we get to our needs. Because there's also this truth that we're going to unpack here this morning that God is a father He's our heavenly father, and we can kind of just approach him with our need. So it's okay in the midst of trial to just cry out to God without all of the formalities and just say, I need you, God. I'm hurting here. Help me. Where are you, God? And just to cry it out in prayer without saying adoration first, you know, and all that stuff. It's okay to just call out to him. He's a loving heavenly father. So Jesus says, pray then like this our father. There's a very confusing word here for 21st century North Americans. Did you catch the confusing word in the start of this prayer, our father? There's something really strange here. I don't get it. It doesn't say my father. It says our father. It's corporate. It's communal. It's not individualistic. It's not me-centered. I'm not the center of the universe, nor God's. The prayer that is taught is our Father. There's so much to learn from this. We can know God really only in community with others. You cannot grow as a disciple of Jesus apart from other Christians. You absolutely need other disciples to sharpen you, to help you, to train you, to disciple you. you we all need that. And so it's very right for this to say our father. So much is included in this word our. Look, we are to care. This is a good reminder for us to care as much about the needs of others as our own. And that is a tough one. It's a call in the regular diet of our prayer life to pray not only for ourselves, but for others. And one of the helpful pieces for me in prayer is something called concentric circles, where I start in the middle and it's like you throw a rock and all the ripples go out. And so you start with God and his glory and his fame and who he is and adoration of him. And the next ripple is, yeah, my, my needs, my stuff, the stuff that's in my purview. The, oftentimes the motivation for me coming to prayer in the first place is I have this burden. And so I'm praying to God about that and that's okay. But then the ripple goes for, further and I say, I want to pray for my wife and my kids right now, Lord. These things that I'm desiring for them or these things that we're working through. Da, 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 da. Another ripple, my church family, our, our staff team, our elders, I want to pray for them and pray, pray for the church at large, pray for our community, pray for, our, and the ripples go out and out and out. And yeah, we got one little ripple about me in there, sure. But as the ripples go out, it's this God-glorifying prayer life that's also very concerned with the lives of others around us. John Calvin picked up on this when he said, our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise, not only because we feel our own need as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we're so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. 
To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. We are 20 minutes in and I've covered pray like this, our. Pray like this, our Father. We are invited to call God Father. I talked about this at the beginning, right? Like, there's kind of a, a stoic vibe in the room right now. But I just, I just said, we get to call the God who made the galaxies, and we're starting to explore how much is out there, but there's even more beyond what we know. The God who made that, it's unfathomable, says, call me dad. And we're like, well, yeah, of course. I'm a good person. <laughs> of course I get to call him father. I, I, I love Jesus. I go to church. It, like, yes. But isn't it amazing? We get to call God of the universe who made it. Like, I'm, I'm stunned by Chilliwack. Took me a while, but I got there. No, no. I'm stunned. If I didn't leave Chilliwack for the rest of my life, I would look around and be in awe of the beauty of God's creation. I don't have to go far for that. He's amazing. His creation is astounding. And what we're discovering in molecules and strings of DNA, like all, all these crazy things, it's like, what? In the tiny, tiny, tiny is a God so mighty. Call me dad. This is amazing. And this is unique to Christianity. Listen, 14 times in the Old Testament, only 14 times God is referred to as father. So two-thirds of the scriptures, most of the Bible is Old Testament. Only 14 times is he referred to as father in it. And every time. That references to the whole nation of Israel, the father of the nation. In the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus speaks of and prays to God as father 60 times. German theologian Joachim Jeremias did a study in which he searched through the Old Testament and rabbinic writings, the extra biblical materials from ancient Jewish sources he could not find a single example of a Jewish writer addressing God as father, as a personal address, until the 10th century. Like, that's just not Judaism. It's certainly not Islam to call Allah father. No, 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 no. Do you understand the uniqueness of what Jesus is teaching here? Our father in heaven. There is no prayer in the Bible until Jesus that prays to God as Father. And when Jesus comes, he says, pray like this, our Father. This speaks of his goodness and his grace. This produces intimacy and trust. It really can. If we recognize that God who created the universe as our Father, that can produce in us intimacy, a closeness, a familial relationship, and a lot of trust. Wow, I know him. The father's role, period, is significant. Fathers in the room, your role is incredibly significant. Meg Meeker is a Christian pediatrician and author. She wrote a book called Boys Should Be Boys, Seven Secrets to Raising Healthy Sons, and also wrote a, a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, Ten Secrets Every Father Should Know. So a book for fathers and their sons, a book for fathers and their daughters. I'm going to read from both. First, fathers to sons, she writes, boys need to see fathers 
who behave as good men so that they can mimic that behavior. They need to see men at work. They need men who set standards. And if you don't give them standards to live by, they'll pick them up where they find them. MySpace, YouTube. (laughs) This is obviously quite a few years old. MySpace, come on. (laughs) They'll pick them up where they find them. MySpace, YouTube, or the wrong kids at school. A father needs to give his son the model of a man to measure up to. That's what a son wants from his dad. He wants to admire him and be like him. That's a lot of pressure to put on a father. But that's that's what being a dad is all about. And the good news is that all dad really needs to do is be available for his sons to share time with them and let them watch him and learn from him. She writes about the relationship of fathers and daughters. I have watched daughters talk to fathers. When you come in the room, that's when dad comes into the room, they change. The daughter changes. Everything about them changes. Their eyes, their mouths, their gestures, their body language. Daughters are never lukewarm in the presence of their fathers. They might take their mothers for granted, but not you. They light up or they cry. They watch you intensely. They hang on your words. They hope for your attention. And they wait for it in frustration or in despair. They need a gesture of approval, a nod of encouragement, or even simple eye contact to let them know that you care and are willing to help. When she's in your company, your daughter tries harder to excel. When you teach her, she learns more rapidly. When you guide her, she gains confidence. If you fully understood just how profoundly you can influence your daughter's life, you would be overwhelmed. Boyfriends, brothers, even husbands can't shape her character the way you do. The father's role is significant. Why do I say all that? Because dads, listen dads, your goal is to be the kind of dad that when your kids are told, God, you get to call God your father in heaven. That you want to be the kind of dad that when your kids are taught that, they go, what? God is like my dad? That's amazing. And then you get to lean in and say, oh no, it's even better than that. Not only is God like dad, he's even a better dad than I could ever be. That's how good God is. And your kids are like, wow. That's the goal, dads. For some of you, the description of God 
as father isn't amazing. Like I just said, isn't that amazing? God is our father. And you're sitting in your seat like, no, it's not. God as father hurts. God as father is complicated. God as father is troubling to me because he didn't have a good dad. Lots of dads have ruined the title of father through abandonment, neglect. There are dads who have ruined the title of father through abuse of you, your child. And yet the Lord's prayer, our father, that's for you. God says in Psalm 68, calls God the father of the fatherless. Your dad abandoned you. Your dad hurt you. You get to approach, begin prayer by saying, Father in heaven, there is a good dad who loves you, who will not hurt you, will not wrong you. There is hope for you in the gospel. I would be remiss not to talk to dads in the room. Some of you are like, okay, great. That's a good goal. I want to be a father that, that they can see, oh, God is good through. But some of you are in the room deeply convicted right now being like, I screwed this up, this dad thing. Let me tell you this morning, dads, life isn't over. There's no throwing in of the towel now. Your lot isn't sealed. You can repent today and say to God, help me redeem this thing. God loves to redeem broken things. And from this day forward, be a different kind of dad with God, the father as your model and the Holy Spirit as your strength. Jesus is your advocate. There's hope for you in the gospel, dads. Here's what I mean when I say there's hope in the gospel. We have a father in heaven. So look, for those who have good fathers, I want to say, look, they're only a shadow. Praise God for them. They're a shadow of the greatness of your heavenly father. And we get to approach God as just that. And for those who have had bad dads, you have a father who, in heaven who is good. And so all the things I said that are critically important about a dad in his son's lives and daughter's lives. Yes, the father shapes the child, but there is a heavenly father who can shape you even more than an earthly dad ever could. It's not over. It's not all broken. It's not all wrecked. Wrongs can be corrected. Your life can be transformed. And there is no father more loving and more capable of absolutely changing your life than the heavenly father who avails himself to you. He says, I'm a father to the fatherless. I'm here. Come to me. We'll change this. We'll grow you. We'll work through the hurts. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is offering in the Lord's prayer. Approach him as father. But that's not the full phrase, is it? It's our Father in heaven. God is our heavenly Father. If Father speaks of intimacy, this heavenly Father, that the fact that he's in heaven speaks of his greatness and his majesty. And this, if rightly understood, produces awe and confidence in God. God is infinite and omnipresent. So on the one hand, heaven can't contain him. He's so great. But there's this particular sense, though, in which the Father is in heaven 
Because that's the place in which his majesty and glory are most fully manifested. The realization of this should, yes, fill us with reverence and awe. The fact that God is sovereign, that God's sovereign, what that means is that he's in control of everything. And that's true of God. God is in control of all things. And so he's our father in heaven. He's a good dad who loves you and he's powerful enough to change absolutely anything. Look, when we come and we approach it, yes, we're approaching God as Father, but we're approaching Him as Father in heaven. And when we pray that way, we can pray with confidence. It's like when my boys come to me and they ask me for things, there is not a question in their minds about whether I can do it or not. And thankfully, their requests as young boys are quite simple at this point. Dad, can you get the hockey net down? Dad, can you make me a snack? Dad, can I stay up late? Dad, can you play catch with me? Dad, can you build this Lego set for me? And they're always expecting. They, they don't, there's no shadow in their minds that they think, Dad can't get the hockey net down. Like they just, they know I can. Things are still simple enough with young children. I can still do stuff they need. So it is with our heavenly father. We come to him with a posture that says, you can do it. I have no doubt. That's who he is. That is who he is. And we need to be mindful of both of these things. A.W. Pink reminds us that these are the two things, Father and in heaven, that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first without the second tends toward unholy familiarity, right? We don't want to just approach him as Father, like, hey, Dad, sup? Uh, Could I have some pocket change for the corner store? Like, that's not really how we approach God. That's irreverent. So we don't want to, on the one hand, approach him just with this unholy familiarity. But the second without the first produces coldness and dread. God almighty, powerful, distant, doesn't care about me. That part without the father is just such an imbalance as well. And so he says, by combining them together, we are preserved from both evils and a suitable equipoise is wrought and maintained in the soul as we duly contemplate both the mercy and might of God. His unfathomable love and his immeasurable loftiness. He is both of those things in the phrase, our father in heaven. He's that glorious and he's that generous. I would be remiss not to close by saying this. The prayer begins by praying our father. Who's that for? Is it for all humanity? Anybody who wishes just can pray to God and refer to him as father. The prayer is addressed to our father and is to be used by all the members of his family. And my question this morning is, is that you? Are you a part of God's family? If you are, you are offered the opportunity to call the God of the universe, father, your father. Look, when the Bible speaks of the fatherhood of God, it doesn't characteristically do so with regard to creation, but specifically to redemption that he redeems, that he saves, that there's relationship. Look, from the time of Adam, Adam was sent out of the Garden of Eden. But from that point on, God has promised to make us his children again. God called the nation of Israel, my firstborn son. In Hosea 11.1, God said, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He named the anointed kings of Israel, David and Solomon, to be his sons. Yet the history of Israel and its kings was one of failure to trust God and obey him and truly be his sons. And then the New Testament comes along. Jesus arrives on the scene. And Matthew chapter 2 quotes 
Hosea 11, as fulfilled prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. Mary and Joseph retreat from Herod, from danger into Egypt, and then return fulfilling prophecy about Jesus, the true son. Jesus as his baptism, the significant event, a voice from heaven comes down and says, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well, well pleased. Theologian Graham Goldsworthy says of that moment, one can almost hear heaven's sigh with relief. Ah, God's true son has finally come. Because in that moment, at last, was a true son who perfectly trusted, obeyed, and pleased his father. That's why Jesus can say in John eleven forty one, I know that you always hear me. The apostle Paul says of followers of Jesus that they are in him. They're in Christ. Meaning, what's true of Jesus is true of us. We're a part of him. The father hears and loves the son. And if the father always hears the son, then he always, hear, then he always hears those who are his sons in Christ. What I'm talking about right now is called the doctrine of adoption. This is what God has done for us. It's painted very clearly in one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Look at what that's saying ultimately is that our elder brother, Jesus Christ, took our place, bore our sin on the cross, and made us right with God so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but sons of God. Sons means that every man, woman, and child who receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, surrenders their life to Christ, receives adoption into the family of God and the inheritance of the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. All that is his becomes ours. Simply amazing. Therefore, if you would give your life to Jesus, even today for the first time, surrender your life to him, you can have Jesus as your faithful elder brother and the God of the universe as your loving heavenly father. In Christ is how we can approach the God of the universe and sincerely say, Father. We are going to uh, have a time of response here. And uh, so I'm gonna invite communion servers to come up, the worship band to come on up. And we're just gonna invite you over the course of a song or two um, we have time for about one, but if you want to linger, you're welcome to stay for another. And you can just come up when you're ready and receive communion. If you believe in Jesus, if you would say, I'm a Christian, I love God, I want to be his disciple, I'm living for him, you're welcome to come up and receive that. Receive communion. It's his body given, his blood shed for you. Come and do that for the first time. I recognize we have the grade schoolers in the room this morning. And so parents, it's to your discretion. Does your child understand the gospel and believe it for themselves in their heart? You're welcome to let them partake with you. If, if you're like, you know, maybe they're not quite understanding it fully or truly trusting Jesus as their savior, let them come up with you or observe you. It's really cool for them to get to see mom or dad or guardian do that. And so 
Um, you can do that in those ways. We're talking about prayer this morning. We'll have prayer team in different places in the room. It's our great joy and privilege to pray with you. You'll already be up. If you'd like prayer for anything, just slip to one of the sides. The prayer team will be wearing lanyards and avail themselves to you. I want to invite you to stand with me. Um, And we're going to recite uh, the Lord's Prayer together. It'll be on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen.